0: This is KMUW Wichita Public Radio. Engage ICT is a community engagement event of KMUW Wichita. The following event took place on October 9th at Roxy's Downtown. Welcome everyone to Engage ICT. We're very happy to have you all here. Uh, I'm Sarah Jane Crespo and uh, with me tonight is a wonderful panel to talk about political philosophy and all that that implies. Uh, We're pleased to offer these events for free every month, uh, but if you would like to support Engage ICT, you can help us grow, and to do that, um, you can leave a donation in a donation slip that we have here, um, and we would love for you to do that. Also, sign in. There should be a sign-in sheet kind of going around, or there will be momentarily, um, at the end of the evening Someone will win a gift certificate for $25 at Lucinda's. So it's a, a nice little gift certificate. Sign, uh, sign in so that we know you are here. Uh, we'd like to thank our partners this evening, Roxy's, for the fabulous venue and food. Thank you so much to Roxy's. They have partnered with us all year for our Engage ICT Democracy on Tap events, and we really, really appreciate that partnership. Also a big thanks to the Wichita Public Library for the further resource guides that they provide every month. Those are really interesting, um, and we have them here uh, on our information table if you'd like to grab one one for this evening or one from a, a previous event. So a round of applause for the Wichita Public Library as well. So to kick it off here, um, I will let the panel all introduce themselves and talk about uh, your journey and, and kind of what, what brought you into the position that you're in now and uh, what uh, makes you passionate about the topic that you're studying or, or that you specialize in. Um, and we will start with Heather Anderson. At the end of the table, you're with WSU's Political Science Department.
1: Yes, and I am a new faculty member at WSU. Um, this is my first semester, and so I'm also brand new to Wichita as well. Um, I study things related to American political behavior, um, asking questions about why we identify with the political parties that we do identify with, and that has changed, and how that has changed over time thinking largely about how different identities matter in terms of politics and how those identities translate into um, political identities like partisanship. And so, Very good
0: to have you. Welcome, Heather. Next up is Cheryl Wilson from KIPCOR, the Kansas Institute for Peace and Conflict Resolution. Oh, <laughs> Welcome,
2: get, Cheryl. You get a gold star. Thank okay. you so much. Um, I... Um, Let's see. So um, my journey to Kansas, um, I am new to Kansas. I've got two more weeks until I'm here for a whole year, so I'm going to keep calling myself new until y'all tell me to stop. Um, but I um, I moved here from North Carolina, the Raleigh-Durham area, about a year ago, and um, I really came out here for the work. It, it, it's uh, really... A- gratifying to work in a field where I can do a lot of different things in my skill set, which my background is in conflict resolution. Um, I get to work as a practitioner. I get to uh, uh, work in in the ways of teaching um, young young adults and and people in the community and doing trainings in conflict resolution. And all of that in one role. I'm, I'm just thrilled beyond measure to do that. Um, the idea of, of helping people to get along in different in different ways is is what kind of attaches me to this discussion today. so I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Um, next oh yes- <laughs> Next up, uh, a man many of you will probably recognize, Brandon Johnson, our city council member. Um, please, uh, Brandon, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you are here tonight.
3: Awesome. Well, good evening, everyone. <laughs> yeah, I guess it is pretty late. Um, my name is Brandon, and I am here because this is an important discussion, not only to me, but to the city, to our state, uh, to our country. Uh, i BECAME A COUNCIL MEMBER AFTER YEARS OF SAYING NO TO FOLKS TELLING ME I SHOULD CONSIDER RUNNING. Um, I'M 32, SO I HAD MY AGE THAT I THOUGHT WAS GOING TO BE A HURDLE. IN SOME WAYS, I, I HEARD ABOUT THAT. BUT um, OVER THE TIME, JUST WORKING IN THE COMMUNITY, I WAS ENCOURAGED TO, to THINK ABOUT IT AT LEAST. AND FINALLY, MY, my BOSS, MY WIFE, GAVE ME PERMISSION. <laughs> um, AND ONCE SHE SAID, OKAY, WE, we EXPLORED IT AND WE'RE HERE. And uh, some of the questions I think will be asked, our campaign actually embodied. I did not run a negative campaign. I don't believe in that personally. Um, And I never will for as long as I'm in politics. I don't believe that we should tear others down. We should talk about our ideas and acknowledge our differences in a respectable way. So that's why I'm here.
2: Welcome.
0: And last up, we have Larissa Laurie, who is with WSU in their communication department, uh, working on. Well, why don't you tell them what you're working on there?
4: Hello, my name is Larissa Laurie, and I'm a graduate student at Wichita State. And I am currently in the middle of writing a thesis on fake news and social media. For the last two years, I have studied politics and media and why we believe the things that we do. Um, For my job, I'm a content creator and consultant. Excellent. Let's have a round of applause for our panel.
0: And uh, as we get started here, you all will notice, uh, of course, the question slips on the tables there. Um, Please fill out uh, your questions. And uh, when you have, well, we'll come around periodically. Asha will come around and uh, pick up those slips from you. Uh, and we will we'll get your questions answered as best we can as we go along. Uh, so let's dive in here and just kind of start with um, what values tend to be behind political ideologies and any research that all of you can share. Heather, do you want to kick this off for us?
1: Yeah, I can. Um, What's interesting about this question to me and also might be sort of a nice aspect for us to think about um, when we then get later on in the discussion about some aspects of um, differences and how to overcome those differences, while we hear a lot about political ideologies and we can all talk about different ideologies of liberalism, conservative positions, that sort of thing, and this might be taking a little different than what you had expected, Americans on average don't really think ideologically. While it is this idea that we have of sort of the ideal citizen, that they should have some sort of systematic organization to their thoughts, and they exist in this larger belief system about how government should operate and that, the reality is is that most individuals in the sort of population Um, don't, actually have that thought process going on when it comes to politics. Um, and so for example, while many people can identify and when we ask them the question of, are you a liberal, are you a conservative, they'll give us an answer. Um, but then when we ask them actual policy questions, sometimes their answers will conflict in terms of what we would expect a conservative say won't actually take conservative policy positions or what we expect a liberal to say won't take um, liberal policy positions and um, so we've got sort of that disconnect between both symbolic ideology and what we talk about as sort of operational ideology or those actual issue positions. Instead, what we actually think about more is group attachments and our connections with various sort of social groups, um, and then also the groups in terms of the political parties. So I think one of the interesting things to think about sort of when we think about ideology is recognizing that it's something that exists and sort of that structure is something that exists much more among political elites, elected officials, media commentators, and so forth, not really sort of the average everyday voter or average everyday citizen in the United States. Now with that said, we do know that there are especially some different personality characteristics that are correlated with different ideologies, making you sort of predisposed to one ideology or another. Um, For instance, the one that we hear a lot about today in research is how authoritarianism tend to be more conservative um, in terms of things because they tend not to like um, gray area. They like black and white. They like rules and so forth. Um, And so that fits more with sort of a conservative thought process and conservative identification.
4: Um, and to kind of build on that, there's also um, something that we refer to in the communication sector as your social identity. And so the values behind your political identity might be a factor in the social group that you I- are, I- identify with. And then additionally, there's something called post-truth politics, which are emotional appeals, and they're largely without fact, and they ignore factual rebuttals. So you're Political ideology could be based on your emotions rather than your logic.
0: Either of you want to talk more from the ground? <laughs> there
2: I just think that um, a lot of what speaks to me in this way, and I'm not a researcher in this area, but uh, it's, it's what attaches what people are attached to and their values and and their passions tend to play out politically. And therein lies the rub sometimes in the ways that um, some of this uh, plays out in terms of how people clash or how people come together. You good?
0: Okay, Um, the Pew Research Center shows that polarization is increasing dramatically. In 1994, 49% of Americans held mixed political views, uh, and by 2004, it became 39%, which is a 10% drop uh, in just 10 years. So those on either side of the aisle find one another more and more unfavorable, and even believe the other side poses a threat. Um, it also showed, according to a BBC report, that those with mixed political views are less likely to actually go vote. So in light of this kind of information, how can we proceed to build bridges and find common ground with one another?
3: So I'll jump in on that one. Um, so I, I, saw this last year throughout my campaign, um. We talk to everyone, and of course with voter registration, um, us candidates can see uh, what political party you affiliate with uh, when we get that data from the uh, election office. So there are folks who will tell you not to talk to folks on the other side. I have found a conversation with folks has been the best way to build a bridge. Um, And as long as you try your best to be respectful, you can find a way to disagree without being disagreeable. believe President Obama always said that. That was something I took to heart and saw it last year uh, quite a bit. There were doors where folks were in my database, uh, the opposite party of me. And even some of the stickers and things I saw were were things I don't necessarily agree with. But when we began to talk about just city issues and family and where we want to see our city go to, that kind of went over the partisan views and really looked at, well, how can we support one another? And that's always my encouragement. I do it all the time on social media. I encourage conversation, and it's tough on social media because we're not having that face to face. But again, that healthy exchange of ideas is how we move our country forward and our city forward. Because no, it doesn't matter how liberal you are or conservative you are, we're still in this same country together. We still have issues we have to tackle. And we're not going to tackle it being mad at each other and not talking. We've got to talk. And especially for us in office, I don't uh, particularly like elected officials that won't talk to folks, and especially folks who disagree with them. I try to stay open to everybody and have those conversations because at the end of the day, we serve everyone. uh, We represent everyone. And it does us no good to not talk to folks. So that's one step I would say to take to build bridges.
1: Yeah, and just to sort of follow up on a process that you're talking about and put it in sort of the... political science academic jargony terms we can talk about that we can oftentimes overcome differences when we appeal to a superordinate identity or one that is branching across so appealing to either a united sense of national identity or city identity or community identity um, really helps individuals to see that in-group connection with people that might be different and so having those conversations and building, those connections can be really helpful. Um, But I wanted to follow up a little bit about um, that Pew study and talk a little bit about that, because I think there's some things going on in that study, um, not sort of technical things going on, um, but trends that it reflects in the the population um, and amongst the political elites that need to be made clear so we better understand what's going on in the electorate versus um, what sometimes just the initial look at the numbers might tell us because um, those can be sort of misleading and the process is sort of more complex. We talk about polarization often in terms of the idea of people going to the extremes and they're no longer being sort of moderates or a middle ground, but rather people are taking either extreme policy positions or extreme ideological positions. Um, And the reality is actually in the mass public, most people are still moderates and taking moderate policy positions. They've not become highly polarized. Now that's completely different different than the political elites, and in fact, um, elected representatives in the U.S. Congress are currently the most polarized they have ever been since the 1870s, um, and even a little bit before that, um, and so we have sort of these extreme levels of elite polarization that aren't necessarily reflected in the mass polarization, in the masses. What we have more going on is better sorting. Um, Because those elites are polarized and because they're sending us more uh, clearer signals about what it means to be a Democrat or what it means to be a Republican, we've been able to better match our issue positions with our party labels. Um, Now, we have to remember there's still a lot of people in this country that don't identify as Democrats or Republicans. Um, In fact, If you just take sort of the raw numbers, over a third of the population identify as independent. And so we become much better sort of partisan sorted um, in terms of that matching. Although we have become affectively polarized, meaning we dislike the other side a lot more than we
2: used to. Well, you know, you're, you're asking in the end, um, how can we proceed to, to build the bridges and find common ground? And, and that's kind of where I live in the, in the work that I do. What, what often is challenging is when people are on those far sides is there's a lack of desire on both sides to want to live in the space of the other. And I think, it, you know, if, if we're really talking about building bridges, it means that we have to make decisions more and more to get out of our comfort zones. And that means in the places, you know, if you think about how we got here, a lot of it is how we are in community or how we are not in community. Um, in many, you know, in many uh, situations in the past, People were kind of in situations where, and and I hate to use the word force, but you were kind of forced to be with people. You were forced to be with people that you may not have the same uh, points of view or value systems as. We are less and less likely to do that when we choose, when we have the ability to choose. And you think about it. Schools and maybe the places that we work in are probably the few places where we're kind of forced to be with one another and so if that's the only places where we don't choose you know because we choose where we want to live we choose where we want to worship we choose the communities that we want to be a part of and if we're choosing often in situations where they're like-minded people it just validates that far side every time And so it's gotta be a decision that you make, that you're going to choose to do some things that take you out of the comfort zones that you're in. It might be visiting a place of worship of of some other religion or some other going with a friend that invites you to something that they're doing in their faith-based community. It might be going to a sport (laughs) that you don't you wouldn't normally attend. It's taking yourself out of the places that feel comfortable for you that are gonna kind of help you to build bridges because you're gonna you're gonna glean things. You're going to have a greater understanding of what it's like to walk in someone else's shoes if you start actually doing that.
4: And Cheryl has a really good point. In communication, we found that we amplify the voices that agree with our own values. So take everyone, most people in this room have a Facebook or a Twitter. You tend to follow people that have the same beliefs as you do, but over time we've found that that creates more and more polarization. So your opinion may start out very moderate, but if you only exist in a vacuum chamber with similar ideas, your ideas will become more extreme. So to build those bridges, you need to open yourself up to other opinions. And I know that that seems very counterintuitive and difficult, but how often do you unfollow people that you disagree with on Facebook, but then don't unfollow the person that you agree with that may also share an extremely um, untrue opinion or share something that is a little crass? We don't unfollow the people whose ideas that we agree with. And then we also need to fight the own filter bubbles that exist in our lives. We interact, on average, with people that have the same education status, the same socioeconomic background, the same race. And so what Cheryl said, in real life and online, you need to put yourself out there to interact with people that are different from you and have different ideas than you.
0: Um, Heather you focus on political psychology and social identities Um, why don't you start off with uh, telling us how they kind of translate into political identities how does that occur Uh, of course maybe it isn't as simple as that what you were saying earlier Um, but how that translates and how that changes over time
1: yeah um, so what we've really sort of come to sort of view in terms of how people form political identities. And probably the most salient political identity um, that people have is their partisan attachment. Um, And we've come to realize that this is a process really based upon sort of group membership and what's sort of called social identity theory in political or in political psychology, borrowing it from um, some social psychology, and basically. It's this fact that we all are in various different social groups. We like being in groups. Um, We know that at a very minimum level, we can make up groups. And um, we then identify with that group. We will then project sort of positive things on that group, project negative things on the group against us, and so forth, in a very simple way. Like, we could randomly put you guys all in groups, and it would happen very quickly. And so sort of more broadly and more sophisticated than that, we also are part or we have various different social identities. And these are the identities that we as individuals share with that larger group. And so it's the part of us that we have in common with others that we connect to. And we oftentimes think about race as a large social identity, various different religious identities being social identities, occupations or placements in the work. Force like a union identity and so forth Um, some of my research focuses specifically on gender identity and so we have these different social identities and so when we look towards sort of informing our political identities what we do is we try to minimize the difference between us and the political parties in terms of those social identities and so we look and say all right which party better represents who I am socially, and I'm going to be a member of that party, sort of shrinking that distance between me and that party, and then also at the same time thinking about which party is the most unlike me. Who do I not see, like who... When I look at the party, who do I not, or who is not reflecting me, type of a thing? And so we try to maximize our difference um, from that party. So it's this very basic sort of in group, out group maximization on what social identities are the most salient for an individual, what social identities have become politicized at different time periods that might vary um, in that. And so that's sort of the basics in terms of how social identities um, Influence political identities. What's happened in the, about the past ten years is our political identities have also become a social identity in many ways, um, in terms of how we organize our lives and how we try to then minimize and maximize those outgroup differences with people from the other party or people from our with uh, with our own party. Um, and what that's resulted in is much less of those cross pressure or cross identities existing and we become very well both socially and politically sorted in terms of those identities and so we do on so many levels politically, socially and stuff just interact with very similar people um, and really don't go outside of those bubbles because we like that it's just easier for us to do psychologically and so it's not like it's inherently bad or anything um, but it's just what happens? As a quick aside, the next time that you're at a barbecue or you're talking to your
4: coworkers and someone says a political, um, I, like a political talk comes up. Watch yourself, do you become more extreme or do you become more moderate in a group setting? So some peer-reviewed studies that I'm working on for my thesis indicate that when we talk to other people who are the same political party, we tend to become more extreme, but when we talk to people from the other side of the aisle, we become more moderate. And so that's something that you can perform as an experiment in your own daily life.
0: Um, I have a couple of audience questions here. Um, What role does the media have in helping us become less politicized and polarized?
1: (laughs) (laughs) So the media is not completely to blame, um, but is somewhat responsible for a lot of the polarization and a lot of the politicalization of different things. And I say that not in terms of a sort of, oh, you know, it's all one network's fault or one political commentator's fault. But one of the things that's been a big thing that's happened, um, and many of you will probably can speak to this in your lifetime, you remember when there was three television stations. I at least know that I do. And and then we got, you know, 20 with cable. And then we got now, like, I don't know, so many that I probably couldn't count in that. But when that happened, one, we lost sort of a common news source and we lost sort of a common um, set of ideas for us to work off of. And instead, we can now. Be more choosy. If we want to avoid politics, we can, and we can watch sports all day, every day, and on multiple different stations, or we can watch um, other sort of home improvement shows or whatever is your particular fancy. Um, You don't have to watch the news anymore compared to previously if you wanted to watch TV between six and seven o'clock, you were going to be watching the news. Um, Additionally, we can be more picky even about where we're getting our political information from. And so we know that people select different news sources based upon their partisan leanings. Um, and many of these newer newer, and I recognize like CNN's been around for like 20 plus years. Um, but newer, cable news sources, internet sources, that sort of thing, Are more partisan in nature than what was more sort of traditional news journalism in the past and so the media has done a lot to fuel this in some ways we could also think that they could reverse it if they wanted to Um, but they're all concerned with making money other than NPR Um, and that (laughs) and so we know that scandal, we know that arguments sell. And so it's a way for them to continue making profits.
2: Um, my, I, I do have a background in conflict resolution, but my first love was journalism. Um, when I started college, I wanted to... Uh, the, the people who were my teachers, I'm um, dating myself, but there was an, an older gentleman named Walter Cronkite on the news when I was coming up. But I say that because in, in my teaching um, to be a journalist, there was uh, first and foremost, you have a responsibility as a journalist to, to dispense the truth, to, to look for the truth, to use multiple sources, to not get it wrong. And honestly, um, it was right around that time that we were seeing the tide change. And we were gravitating more toward entertainment and a lot of other things that didn't necessarily play into it as much in terms of whom a particular media source was funded by being able to shut it down if they wanted to and tell the journalists what they could and could not endorse um, or what they could and could not speak about because of the money that filtered into their pockets. So that became more and more of the direction that journalism was going, which was part of the reason why I kind of fell out of love with the field. Um, I, have a, I have a great respect for people who do, who do the work, um, don't get me wrong. However, I do feel like that's part of the challenge is when journalists don't feel that sense of responsibility to get it right, but to be sensational or to put the you know whatever the headline is out there that's going to bring the most um, eyes to the paper or to the to the to the to the website. Um, that concerns me deeply because there's a difference in values um, that. I think, didn't always exist. Um, So in in just thinking about that idea and how it feeds into polarization, um, I think that sometimes we have to examine where is the source coming from? Who's lining their pockets? And if we don't do our own due diligence, then we're getting it wrong ourselves. And then if we replicate that by sending it to someone, which is so easy to do on social media that we're, we're, we're kind of buying into it and we're in some ways taking on that role of being irresponsible when we do that. Um, so as,
4: as a current working journalist, I have the unfair uh, disadvantage in this panel, but I want to point out some few things. Yellow journalism has been around since 1835. The anti-vaccine movement was first created in the early 1800s. Yellow journalism is not new. Polarization in our news is not new. What is new is what Heather had mentioned earlier is that we do not share a frame of reference anymore. I can get my news from Twitter and I can talk to somebody who got their news from the TV and we can have totally different experiences. So it's not necessarily that the media is to blame, it's that we're getting our information from all different sources. The other thing that I'd like to point out is that, um, real quick, raise your hand if Charles Barkley is a journalist. (laughs) Okay, so a lot of times we like to throw around the word journalist for people that didn't go to journalism school, that do not work for a credible, trustworthy news organization, but somehow they're a journalist, do the people that work for the onion, are they journalists? And so we're having a, a naming issue more so than the media being at fault. The other thing um, that I wanted to hit on that Cheryl mentioned is the seeing something and sending it to your friend. There's something that exists that's called groupthink. So we see our friend that we think is very smart, that we went to college with, that has all their stuff together, and they share something, and you're like, whoa, I can't believe that. But She's really smart. There's no way that she would share that false information. You are relying on your friends to do the legwork for you and that's where we get in trouble. It's not the blogger who exists in a third world country that is trying to make up fake headlines to get ad revenue to pay like to support their family. It's you for not like testing your sources and doing the legwork when you're sharing things for giggles on Facebook.
0: I have a question. (laughs) The next one's a question for you specifically. Uh, Council member, do you think hyper-local subjects are as polarizing as the big statewide issues like guns and abortion? Or do they not even compare?
3: Yeah, that was a hard question. Um, I don't think they compare. Um, So if you take a really local issue like Century Two. There will be disagreement. I've only experienced one person yelling about Century Two. <laughs> um, but if you take school funding, you can divide a room and it, it gets really serious. So I think those issues are different. And honestly, now that I'm in local government, I think that's kind of the way for the future in the country. Our elections are not partisan. Um, So we don't have to deal with that stuff. It might come up at a door, but we can have a common sense conversation. We can talk about issues. um, But once you go county commission, that's partisan. Those conversations are much different. And a lot of times the doors, they start with the partisan questions and who are you and are you pro-life or pro-choice and get off my lawn. I mean, it's real quick. At least with the council, those issues you don't really see too much division at least right now. I I think maybe the hottest topic would be property taxes and we'll see how that goes next year. But yeah.
0: Um, how can we get people to understand the importance of vetting or fact checking how to start?
3: So there was a, uh, there was a great article and I, every time I find it, I share it on Facebook and the headline is something that's ridiculous. Um, like, everybody's going to get free health care next year because, or whatever. And then you share it. The actual article is basically hitting you on not reading the article and just sharing it from the headline. And it talks about vetting what you're looking at. And I just went through a, uh, a training, our final session with the Sunflower Foundation that talked about this bacon shortage worldwide that was going to happen. And this got shared around. I think it had hundreds of thousands of shares. The reality is this company made up a site to talk about low levels of bacon just as promotion. It got picked up by some actual um, credible journalistic sites and shared. And people really thought this bacon shortage was real. And it wasn't. But you can cite in the article that it came from this made-up site. Um, So if you don't really look through what you're reading and click on those links to see where this information is coming from, it can be detrimental. You can also be adding to the fake news out there um, if you don't check that out. And, again, look at where the original site is. So is it some made-up site or is it the CDC or, like, a federal site? And even now some of that is a little questionable. But, um, yeah, look at your sources.
2: Um, I just remember um, and there are so many famous stories out there how many of you got the uh, email or the Facebook posting about Microsoft giving away money at one point in time um, there were it was like if you share this with ten people you'll get this much money from Microsoft and it was just ridiculous but it kept it, it's still out there I think every so often I'll get it but the point being um, if we don't do our homework, if we, if we, we are, are we have to be committed to fact checking just like anybody else. And I, I can't say enough about just how that in of itself creates conflict when we just pass something on without checking it um, or we quote somebody <laughs> without checking to be sure that it's true um, and it's, it's those kinds of things that um, will either bring us together, even if we are, even if we are having the. And I have done this. I have been the bearer of bad news when someone has sent me something that is fake, and I've done it in a very polite way, where I don't, I don't blast it on their page. Oh, this is fake. I will inbox them and just say, Hey, you know, I checked the source on this. You might, and I'll show them where it is. You know, just things like that just help kind of dive certain things down. Um, And and just otherwise, I just think um, how we – this is just another way that we can be kind and gratuitous to one another in just stopping things that really um, kind of feed that polarization. So
1: one thing, and I'm not here just to plug NPR on different things, um, NPR actually on their website has a really great, um, it, they put it out a few years ago, how to sort of detect if something's a fake news story, um, and it goes through some of the points that have been talked about in terms of just, does it seem reasonable and stuff, um, but you can always Google that and, you know, NPR, how to determine fake news, I don't know the exact name, although I should should because it's on next week's readings for my intro to American government class. Um, The other thing is, is I do think we need to, I'm a little, I agree with everyone that we need to take an individual personal responsibility in terms of what we can do. But I also think we do need to hold our institutions, whether it be news organizations or elected officials, Um, accountable and responsible because they do have, there is one of the things that is oftentimes difficult is we all have other things to do than spend hours researching every little bit and piece of information that we all come across. Um, If we did that, we'd never feed ourselves or mow the lawn or anything like that. We'd just be researching all day. So we have to, at some point in time, be able to trust different sources for information so that we don't have to actually look up every little piece and that sort of thing. And so I do think we need to also stop paying attention to sources that we know aren't providing us with useful information, Um, start really being annoying to our elected officials if we know that they're not um, telling us the truth about different things, um, because there's all because not everyone is going to spend the time to do the due diligence and research on every piece of information, and so we really need to be able to trust these various different sources. Um, to be able to do that. And I think education in schools is really important in terms of media literacy and just where to get accurate information from and what's the difference in different types of sources.
4: On that note, librarians are currently leading our media literacy charge. Do the children in your life have a librarian, a full-time one with a library degree? Um, that might be something to talk to your uh, local city councilman or your school board about, um, is are they teaching media literacy in the schools in our, our communities? Because that's one way to work on convincing everyone that vetting needs to happen is when they're young and in school. Um, when running a political a political
0: campaign, how do candidates rise above the mud and can they afford to? There seems to be an idea that kindness is essentially weakness. Uh, Brandon, do you want to kick this one off for us?
3: Just do it. <laughs> um, seriously, I mean, when we go back a little further in my campaign, so we kind of planned some things out much earlier than I think what we told the public in April we were looking at that at the end of 2016 and the one message and I think it always comes from the candidate, the candidate is the the name on the ballot, the top of the campaign, you say um, what you want. And I told my campaign volunteers that I was going to run a positive campaign. I had nothing negative to say and if I was going to be attacked, if I did punch back, it would be with a fact and it wouldn't be to um, tear down my opponents. And There were folks who said you need to go negative. Um, When it comes to, and you get into the science of it, people respond to negativity. So you'll get more attention if you're negative. Um, I didn't care about that. And it was risky. I mean, we could have lost badly. But I never said anything negative about any of my opponents. I had three in the primary. Um, They were a little older than I was. And they all attacked me at some point about my age, attacked me about my experience. It talked me about some of my activism, uh, things I've said publicly, and every time I just responded, this is who I am, this is what I stand for, this is what we intend to do on the city council, love to have your support. Um, I'd acknowledge the great things they've done in this city, because they have, and that was that. There were people who wondered why I wasn't punching back, but for what? What does that give you as a voter? It just shows you that I can punch back. I'd rather show you the ideas that I have, hear your ideas, and work towards that. So I think you can do it. Um, The political advisors and where it's going to be tough in this environment is they will all tell you to be negative. So if you want to run for office next year, somebody's going to tell you, you got to go negative. Let's start doing opposition research. What did they do when they were a teenager? Did they ever get arrested? Do they have a speeding ticket? None of that matters. It really doesn't. You can bring it up, you can uh, tear down someone's character like that, but if their ideas are terrible, talk about the ideas and talk about why yours are better. But you don't have to run negative campaigns. You'll have folks to tell you to do it, um, but we didn't. And I don't ever intend to. I don't think I have to. If you like the ideas that I'm talking about, hopefully you'll support them. Um, and if you don't, then you want. And if I win, I still have to serve you anyway. So. There you go.
2: I have a colleague, and uh, he calls what you're talking about practicing histro- heroic restraint <laughs> um, and you know when you think about um, you know many of the ways that people show up and it becomes a session of demonizing the other. Um, it it doesn't get us anywhere. But um, I I just just thinking about these conversations and how you know you're coming from one very far side, come and and then the other is coming from another from another very far side. How do you get to the place where you talk? And The ways that you do that in practicing heroic restraint have to do with something you probably have already learned. Um, How many of you have learned about active listening? Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's not a foreign topic. And I'm not teaching you anything new, but it's just that some things aren't broken. (laughs) They really work. Um, The idea that you can hear someone who is so far on the other side of your truths and just listen to what they have to say without hold- and you put your agenda on pause. If you can practice that regularly, I guarantee you that people are going to want to hear what you have to say in return. But what happens often is we're so busy thinking of the next thing we're wanting to say or how we want to rebut what the other person has said that we fail to kind of get to that next level in having conversation. But if you can take a moment to really just suspend your, your agenda and really hear what that other party has to say and look for common ground, and in some ways we do that with the people we love we do that with our children we do that with people we respect and i think that's what's hard is when there's not that you know that emotion or that caring for that other person then we just kind of cut it off and i think that's where we have to begin is and again it's another way of getting out of your comfort zone in Walking in someone's shoes that you would never, you know, normally walk in the, on their side of the street. But in doing so, I, I guarantee you, if you continue to go on that path, there will be people who will want to know what you think and how, how you live in the world as well.
4: And Cheryl has a really good point. The next time that you talk to somebody and they differ from you politically or ideology, and they make a really good point, tell them that they made a really good point and then watch them like, oh gosh, they agreed with me. And then say, well, where do we go from here? So you're right, now what do we do? And then follow their lead through the conversation. Not everything needs to be an argument if you're trying to progress towards a goal. And so I would treat that along with active
1: listening as a way to come together? Sorry. Um, So, yes, I think that politicians can rise above things, especially, though, when they are nonpartisan elections. Um, And I think that's where sometimes when we think about state elections or national elections, it becomes more difficult because um, the different parties, we have different impressions of the quality. Qualities associated with those parties. Um, there are parties that we see as more compassionate, and so then if someone not from that party is acting that way, they will be punished by their par- by their primary voters. So if they're acting above the fray and um, willing to work across um, aisles, you know they have to be concerned about actually um, winning elections. And so I. I think that one of the things we need to do is that all sides need to agree that this is important and not make it a quality aligned with certain partisans. The other thing that's difficult is candidates can only do so much, but there's so much else with campaigns, um, especially at state and national elections in terms of interest groups running ads, um, private donors running or private um, individuals running ads, that it then becomes increasingly difficult for a candidate to completely control their message. So there's always
0: been maybe disrespectfulness and there's always been mudslinging in politics, but what is different about the politics we see today, uh, both from political figures and from individuals? What has changed?
3: So, well, I can't say what I want to. Um, (laughs) The previous presidential election saw a candidate himself who was saying things that was very disparaging to various groups and people. And if you tie this into the media issue, these are the sound bites that are repeated. And so when you have a candidate at the top of the ticket saying these things, it changes some of the tone. If you go back to 2008, there were people who told a former president that that agenda would just kind of be a no vote throughout that presidency. So you began to see these things hit a 24-hour news cycle, and people began to resent it. And you would just hear it all the time. And I think the difference now is that 24-hour news cycle where you see this message repeated over and over and over, and you have folks at the very tops of these tickets and in power saying these disparaging things, and we continue to see it, whether we watch it or not. Sometimes you're on social media and a video just pops up and you hear it. Our kids see it when they're on YouTube watching their little cartoons and some political ad comes up and that message is being repeated over and over and over. And I think that begins to play on our subconscious and and it affects us. And we begin to feel certain things when we see and when we hear it. And I think prior to and, and I talk about in Kansas, Kansas was a very moderate state. But then some folks who had more extreme ideas got in power, that messaging changed. Our parties are powerful. So a candidate can say, I want to run a positive campaign. The candidate can also call out their party. And I've been confused as to why more people don't call out their party, because I happily do it all the time. I'm a Democrat. And when the Democrats mess up, I let them know, just like I talk to Republicans about that. But. If we're the majority and we're moderate and we don't call out our party, then what are we doing? And the candidates should also do that as well. And I talk about all candidates who don't call out their party when the party messes up. So when we see these extreme ads and these attack ads and this negative messaging, if we're not saying something and we're okay with our party doing it, if the candidate is okay with their party doing that because they feel like they'll win and it'll be okay, then that's what's wrong. So we all have to play that part and step up and push back against that. I want to hear ideas, even if I disagree with them. Let me hear that idea so I can digest where you're coming from and maybe where we can find some middle ground. But if you're just attack ads from candidates and um, political parties, that's where we're at right now. And I'm sure you're going to start seeing that quite a bit. Today is the last day to register to vote. We've still got a few minutes left. After today, when those ads start, it's going to be negative. Some of them will be party-driven. Some of them will be outside groups. Which candidates are going to stand up and say, I don't support that and they need to take it off the air? Probably none.
1: So I would say that yes, the 24 news cycle is a big problem. The other thing is, is that we have amongst our elected officials, political elites, party representatives have lost the middle ground. There are no more moderates in those positions of power compared to what there used to be in I will say yes. My earliest memories of knowing anything about Kansas was um, that the senators from the state were oftentimes willing to work with people across party lines and were known as moderates in that. Those people are gone from at least our national parties. Um, I think they exist at the local level definitely and hopefully more at the state level, but from at least our national party sort of structures those don't exist anymore. And I would love it if candidates would call people out, but at the same time, I can understand why they don't, given that so much power rests within the parties in terms of funding for campaigns, resources for campaigns once one gets elected, Um, if you're in the House or in the Senate, getting on the right committees to be able to serve your constituents and to be able to raise money for the next election. And so, I understand somewhat why they don't call them out, but um, we definitely need some more of those sort of more moderate people back into politics. So I always like to think about
4: things that we can do. Uh, The sky can be falling, but we all have some steps that we can take. One of the things that all of you can do going into this election cycle is lower the amount of streams that you get your news from, whether... So from the time you wake up, you look at Facebook, you look at Twitter, you look at Instagram, you look at Snapchat, and then you might get on Yahoo News, and then you might check out the New York Times website, and then when you get home, you watch the evening news, but on the way home, you listen to NPR and KBW, and by the time that you go back to bed, you are filled with all of this information, and it it seems like the, the world is gonna crumble. What I would recommend, if you feel that way and you have a lot of anxiety about the news, is to strategically pick where you get it. So on my lunch break, I'm going to check the New York Times, and that is the only news that I will look at for the rest of the day, right? And so that will also help with the moderacy, because then you are looking at... A news source source that you can trust. You can call people on their fake news. The other thing to keep in mind is um, Ireland recently voted on abortion as part of their constitution. I don't know if you're all familiar. But before they were to vote on it, months um, of back and forth and the like, keep it, take it out, millions of dollars from all around the world were spent on ads in Ireland because of outside sources that had a um, play. And they, they wanted a certain outcome that were not Irish citizens. So sometimes when we see these attack ads on Facebook, these um, may be bought by someone who doesn't even live in Kansas. So when you feel like, oh, the people on the other side of the aisle are just really angry and they're really rude and they're sending all these attack ads, keep in mind that those people not, might not even be our community members. And so keep that in mind when you interact across the aisle and build those bridges.
1: One more thing, the other thing I would say is not saying don't vote in the midterm elections but more importantly vote in your primary elections right that's what's driving these extreme candidates and a lack of moderate candidates is that those are the ones winning the primary elections and so if you want to see change get out and vote in the primaries and when you hear people say oh everyone's so extreme that sort of thing encourage them to vote in the primaries because it's at that stage that we select the candidates to be running for office and once they get out of that that primary, moderate candidates can probably win um, because people are still going to vote for them if they share that party label in that. And so um, we don't need to be electing the extreme candidates that we have. Primary turnout is horribly low, and so the people who are turning out in primaries are ideologically extreme um, and sort of extreme partisans, and so if we can get more people to turn out that better represent the actual makeup of people's thoughts in this country or in localities in the primaries, we'll get better representatives. Um, our Councilman Johnson needs to leave a
0: little early tonight, but I want to ask one more question for him to, to kick off uh, a response to. Um, and the question from an audience member is, can you help us get through the holidays in the current political climate?
2: <laughs>
3: that one might be too tough for me. Um, well, before I answer that, I, do, I have to leave because I have a meeting about the Douglas Streetscape this evening and it's something i've been working on for the last four months and this is the final meeting tonight but i wanted to come here first um so the holidays is tough i've had this conversation I, i was at a few rallies earlier this year and last year and we talked about politics and race um so the thing about the holidays is i always encourage the conversation even when it's tough because the only way you can really expand your comfort zone is to stretch it a little bit. And the only way we can reach some folks is by having that conversation. You know who's not going to listen to you. You may not have to talk about that. But the way you get around some of those folks who just don't want to talk politics is just to talk about a few issues. What's important to you? Why is it important? And what are your thoughts about it? And try to come at it from a different way. So if you know of, If you're talking about, um, I don't know, here in Kansas education and you say teachers aren't paid enough and you know that's going to get a door slammed in your face or something, just talk about the value of a teacher. The fact that, you know, your kids are there for eight hours a day. This person is responsible for teaching them not only arithmetic but some life skills as well, even though most of us don't want to admit that. Our teachers are kind of responsible for raising us. I know the teachers I had in elementary school did an amazing job. And my principal um, at Buckner, Ms. Mackey, still around. I still talk to her. Um, but they always try to instill life lessons. Our teachers do that. And it's it's tougher now uh, with bigger class sizes and, and things like that. So talk about those issues and then you might begin to change some of that mindset. It still might be a no and they don't care a little bit, but at least you've given them a different perspective to think about. And as far as yourself, if you like wine, get a bottle. <laughs> uh, if not, do a lot of woo sighs, you know, because um, it takes a lot out of you. It's always tough to have those conversations. Self-care is always important. So when you go into that, there is a form of personal trauma you may feel. You may be really stressed out. Um, So take some time to yourself after that, but it's worth having those conversations. And in our racial rally we had, and when I encourage talking about race, I'd always say, understand, you may not have that family member as your friend anymore after your conversation. There's a real risk to that. It's an unfortunate risk, but it's there. So go into it understanding that that somebody may just never talk to you again. Um, That's a sad reality. But if you understand that going in, it'll be easier for you. And outside of that, hopefully November 6th is um, the results make the holidays a lot easier, <laughs> especially here in Kansas. Um, so I know I'll be praying for that and making sure that I get folks to vote. And I guess before I leave, my challenge is get five people to go with you to vote, five people that don't typically vote. Because as politicians, we count votes. So we know what turnout normally is. I knew what turnout in District 1 normally was. We exceeded that quite a bit in District 1. Um, But it was something that we planned on and executed for. Folks are not expecting a huge turnout. Candidates are not. Some are. So get five people who never vote. Take them with you. Make sure they vote. And then as the results come in, because I believe most of us are moderate, those results will be more moderate, and then we can show your vote does count. So next year, in the council races and school board, vote again. Thank you all.
0: As uh, Brandon steps away, I wanna go to you, Cheryl, and uh, and ask just maybe if there's some some tips or tactics mm-hmm. that you would suggest to keep those friendships alive <laughs> with family members after having those difficult conversations?
2: Well, I, I, I hope that we can keep our relationships through the holidays. Um, so kind of a funny thing. Okay, so be safe first. Uh, wear a lot of padding. No. <laughs> um, don't be hangry because, you know, if you go the whole day and not eat and then have a contentious conversation, that can't be good. Um, So going back to this idea about um, how to have this conversation, um, I, I just encourage you, I know that many of us are passionate about the belief systems that we have, but when we get to the place where we are so wedded to an ideology, or or whatever it whatever it is, that we kind of lose all reason. The conversation it starts at a place way up here, and it it's not going to get better. But if we can kind of start here, with not even even the tone of our voices invites or disinvites people to a conversation, and so um, that's. That's part of it, um, I, and, and I would just say that we shouldn't be looking to change someone's mind as a goal of the conversation. Sometimes we, we don't tell ourselves that that's the reason, but there's, there's something in the way that, that we try to persuade people <laughs> that kind of gets at that. So if we can take that off the table that we're not trying to change their mind, and the other thing that I would say is if we go into the conversation that the goal is to seek to understand first. I, I hate it when I have conversations that waste my time. And what I mean by that is it becomes such a clashing of ideas and we're not hearing each other and we walk out of the room feeling wasted, you know, just like what was that about? I love it when If I can just just dismiss my agenda and I can just hear what that person has to say and if I come out of the room knowing a few more things that I didn't know, even if it's stuff I don't agree with, I feel like I've elevated the game. I feel like, okay, these last whatever minutes I spent talking to this person were not wasted. I've gained something from this and I probably respect that person for giving me that. And so if we can look at everything that we get from people as, in a way, a gift. Um, I'll just share something personal here. I just lost my dad um, a month ago. And you, what you do is you start, you know, when you lose somebody that's that close to you, everything becomes clearer to you. And so in that, I just think about all the conversations that I had with him and the things that now I'm just looking and like, what amazing gifts I received from him. And so if we look at people, even the people that are our enemies, if we look at them as human beings in the sense that this may be the last conversation you have with this person, they're giving you a gift of whatever it is that they want you to know. And if we perceive that as a gift, even if it comes from the other side of our belief systems, it it can be an amazing conversation. It can be a transformative conversation.
4: To amplify Cheryl's story and the knowledge that she shared with you, I want you to think about the last time someone changed your mind on a really big topic or something that was important to you. And now think about all the times that you go into a conversation to try to change someone else's mind. Most of the time they don't add up. And so when we try to code into something and understand it and really to figure out why they believe what they believe and how can I meet them somewhere in the middle, you're going to have a lot less stress and you're going to treat every conversation like a gift.
0: Thank you. Um, In the upcoming election, do you think more people will vote for the party rather than the person or vice versa?
1: The party. Um... We know, so that's, very rarely do people vote for someone that they don't identify with party-wise. That is by far the most important thing in terms of determining how someone's gonna vote. Um, And once you move beyond that, you know, very few people will actually be voting for a specific person, but rather it's much more a party because oftentimes, you know, voting is costly and one of the main costs is information. And so that party label helps as this cost saver big time and so most people just go off of that. And my next audience question
0: is directed at Cheryl. Um, will we ever have trusted sources like Walter Cronkite again with so many choices?
2: What do you think? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think there are some trusted sources out there. I mean, I, I don't want to name names and get myself in trouble. I just knew well, he's, he's kind of untouchable. <laughs> um, but I, I do think that there are trusted sources. I think what you know about the trusted sources is that you can do your own fact checking of what they tell you. And that's all I'm saying. I mean, I know that there that's that's a lot of work to kind of go back and see whether somebody, you know, if this is real. But let's be I I mean I I I don't want to name names, but you know there are people who have said things from that trusted place. And well intentioned, but their understanding of the reality was off, um, and people call them out on it. And it's easier to do in this day and age. And I think that's what's that's what we as as viewers, as as people who uh, are citizens, should be doing. Is if we see something that we know is not aligned with the truth, and we know it, we should. We should say something about it, but I mean, as as far as an individual, I don't want to I don't want to point them out, but there are there are great people out there who are doing due diligence with um, dispensing the news. So I'll leave it at that.
0: Um, have the two major parties actually changed in who identifies with them? For example, blue collar would more often identify as Democrat. If so, how does that fit into all of this, Heather?
1: Yeah, there's been a lot of changes all the time and sort of those different social groups are constantly in flux with their identification with the different political parties. Um, We have seen, for instance, with blue-collar workers, a decline in their identification with the Democratic Party, um, probably because of a decline in the unionization of Um, the blue collar workforce and how closely unions had been integrated into the Democratic Party since the 1940s um, with Franklin's New Deal realignment. Um, You know, if we go really sort of long-term thinking about things, one of the biggest changes that we've seen in our country's history is along the alignments of race and party identification um, in terms of both regionally in the South, but also as a whole in terms of the country Um, as African-Americans have moved from um, voting Republican in the party of Lincoln when um, or if they were allowed to vote before the civil rights era to um, post-civil rights era being much more um, likely to identify as Democrat and vote for Democratic candidates. Um, We also see growing differences between men and women in how they identify with the political parties. Um, men are more likely to identify as Republican and women are more likely to identify as Democrats on average um Religious groups have also changed over time. Um, Catholics were once more likely to identify with Democrats, and that slowly um, have moved away in terms of things. And we see stronger um, other stronger other uh, stronger links between other religious identities and the political parties as that's become just a more politicized identity. So those are just some of the big trends. If there's more specific ones, I can try to answer them.
0: (laughs) No, that's great. Um, How can we find common ground with people who believe things that we oppose completely, that go against everything that we feel? Uh, For example, racism and and
2: big uh, issues along those lines. Okay, just give me the easy questions. Um, (laughs) And world peace. Um, So I, I really still go back to a lot of the things that I said earlier. I think that i have I have had conversations with people on opposing um, very, very opposing like like I have sat in environments where I've had people from, from Israel and Palestine sit in the same room and talk about the things that divide them and I, Sorry, I just want to interject and, and to let this filter into your response also. The, the one issue
0: voters, mm-hmm. you know, on, for example, the issue of abortion. Mm-hmm. Ha- so, you know, fill that, filter that in as well but as your response.
2: So just thinking about how far we can be on on issues. Um, so in doing so, I think there is, and I, I liked what um, uh, Mr. Johnson talked about with it, with respect to talking about teachers and, and education and knowing that there's contention there, knowing that uh, you know, if you start at abortion, <laughs> that's, that's a tough one in the sense that is, is the issue about abortion or is it about the sanctity of life and what people consider life? And, and, and talking about where our values come from because I think that's part of it, is we don't hear each other's stories when we are having these conversations. What we hear is, I'm for or I'm against. But it, doesn't, it shouldn't, it shouldn't stop, start there or stop there. I think the power that rests within dialogue is the power of story. And if I'm allowed to share why because of where I come from, who my people are, what my life's trajectory has been, at least you gain a sense of where I, why I feel that I'm for or against an issue. And, and I think on the flip side, if you're willing to hear someone else's story about why they come to the conclusions that they come to and not just hear the for or against story, because it, 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 shouldn't, it shouldn't lie within that space. And so if, if we're talking about the, the contentious issues, you've got to break that down. And we've got to be willing to hear each other's stories about that and how we get there.
4: The big thing also is to understand that you're not going to change someone's opinion from a yes to a no or a no to a yes in that conversation. The bigger the topic, the further apart the yes and the no are. So if you were going to say, hey, uh, this restaurant is better than that restaurant, you can maybe change their mind in a conversation, but on topics like abortion and racism. If you can change their mind just a little bit in that direction, then that conversation is a success. What I've found the easiest thing to do is to acknowledge that most of the time these things come from a place of ignorance and it's not willful. And so if you, oh, (laughs) uh, but if you ask them why, so if somebody makes a racist comment and you're just like, "Why, why would you say that? And then they're like, oh, well, uh, XYZ and you're like, well why? And then you keep asking why to they get either they're gonna get to a place where they acknowledge that they have a bias or they realize that they have made this assumption an error. And so I would recommend why is the easiest thing to do when you disagree with on a single issue voter person.
2: Yeah I think a tackling I don't think anybody's gonna sit at the table and go racism go. <laughs> you know <laughs> it's just not gonna happen. But I think I think the reality is there are some, some issues that are the big headlines. Absolutely. Abortion is one of them. But I think when we're talking about things like racism, we're not talking about it. We're talking around it. And biases is, is an area that gets at that. And I, I, you know, I have just had people say things, use labels, and I've just said, you know, I have a friend... They don't like to be called that, or whatever, whatever it is. But it's it's those kind of conversations that we can we can broach. But yeah, we're we're probably not gonna at dinner table at Thanksgiving want to have those conversations. But I think we we are gonna have our biases. We are gonna have things that definitely rub us the wrong way. And and there are people we can see them coming. <laughs> And so I think it's, it's where you have to make your choices about um, making the decision if it's worth it, picking your battles. I, I mean, it's a cliche statement, but I, I really mean it. Pick your battles. If it's not a battle that you're willing to, to stay in it, um, then just don't, don't go there. It's the holidays.
0: Um, I would like to go back to that Pew research uh, that I mentioned earlier, showing that people are kind of farther away from political center now than they used to be. Um, do you all have any idea if this distancing of political parties affects our, our economy, for example? Does it have other impacts on us at a local level or a national level? Or, or, can they, Can you see other kinds of effects from this?
1: So it does affect how we perceive the economy. And so we know that people use mainly their partisanship, I'm sorry I sound like a broken record, but it really is all about partisanship. Um, Their partisanship to interpret objective facts. And so we can ask people who are experiencing the exact same economic conditions, the exact same unemployment rate, the exact same stock market, the exact same rate of inflation, that sort of thing, um, if the economy is doing bad or poorly. And if they share the party of the president, they're going to be much more likely to say that it's doing well. If they don't share the party of the president, they're going to be much more likely to To say that it's doing poorly. Um, And we can actually see it flip um, in terms of very shortly after an election of people actually like flipping their um, positions on things. And so when we then once again are interpreting um, this more objective information through partisan lenses, it definitely has an impact on. our ability to produce good policy and that sort of thing. Um, I'm not a policy expert, but one of the things that we do know is that for economics, businesses like stability um, and like to know what's gonna go on in the future, and so if they can't, if government isn't able to reach agreements on things like budgets, um, if they're not able to pass legislation that needs to be able to be passed because they are so far apart and there's no ability to compromise, then it does eventually drag down on the economy and other things. Um, I do, though, think we do see, because we've become so socially and partisan sorted, that you will see sort of less interaction once again as you know we sort of ta- began talking with um, across different people because you're more immediately suspicious of people in terms of their partisan leanings and that
4: uh, coming at this from a communication sort of angle a lot of times we see pressure on ad buyers um, so a Radio talk show that we don't agree with said something that was out there, and so people say, I'm not going to buy a product from the person that is having ads on that radio station. We see similar things every uh, holiday season with Starbucks. It's all over the news, uh, whether you're going to support them extra or you're going to boycott them altogether. And so polarization is also affecting the companies that we source our goods from and the... um, political parties play into that, and which companies they want to support and not support. Uh, Similarly, for example, Arby's employs more people than uh, coal mines, and you can look that up. Uh, But, so these things keep in mind when you are supporting or not supporting a company, there's usually a reason behind it, whether you're aware of it or not.
0: Um, Another audience question here. What defines a credible journalist? Who are they specifically or otherwise? Larissa, do you want to start with this one?
4: Uh, So a credible journalist, you know their name, first of all. I won't tell you how many times that somebody said, can you believe this? Sent me an article, and it's by Jane Doe. So they have a name. They have a picture. So it's not enough that they have a name. They need a picture. Uh, generally, you also should be able to find their Twitter account or affiliated websites with other journalistic work that they've done. So they need a history behind their name and their photo. Generally, they're also affiliated with a trusted or credible news site. And then um, you need to also look through their past Uh, articles that they've done, do they take a partisan uh, stance, do most of the headlines jump out as something that I really, really like, and that's usually a red flag that they're not a credible or trusted journalist. (laughs) Um, Can you all
0: comment on politicians encouraging their supporters to accost or challenge people on the other side in public, like in restaurants? Is that new, Heather? (laughs) It seems new, but I don't know.
1: You know, I think we sometimes forget how maybe much before our memories and before we were alive, politics might have had some of those elements, right? We aren't, or maybe we are these now getting to this point, but we're not challenging anyone to duels, um, which happen, right, like in politics um, and that. I think um, in my er, sort of coming from things, so I don't think it's completely new. I think it is evidence of the time um, that were in in terms of how much civility has been lost from some of our public conversations. Um, and that this is something, at least in my mind, that is once again something that we need to hold our elected officials accountable for um, in terms of that lack of civility. Because I do think that there was at least greater civility than what there previously have been, um, and at least in modern times, in terms of stuff. Um, that civility,
0: that civility thing. Uh, Cheryl, can you talk a little <laughs> bit about, oh, come on. <laughs> what are some tips, or, or I mean, are can we simple. encourage our representatives I mean, how would we best do that, and how do we best encourage one another to kind of regain that? Should we? I mean, that's a broader question. Does it matter?
2: Well, I think I think that you know, if you're serving the public, there you do have a certain level of responsibility that you have to your constituents. So um, I would say we should hold them to uh, certain standards. Um, I I think that. Um, hmm. Um, in terms of being civil to one another, I think a lot of it has to do with some of the things I've shared previously in seeking to understand first. If that is our goal, then, and um, in, 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 in how we deal with each other, and we're seeing, hopefully we're seeing that in candidates that we would vote for, that we're seeing um, a way that they're handling themselves that, like they really want to know what their constituents need and they want to represent them well. Um, so I feel like that's part of it. I feel like also what um, people put out in their uh, in the various ways that they uh, want to be represented. Um, I think as as citizens, um, I think that, what we communicate and how we do so says a lot, um, and I think the the, the candidates that we uh, support, um, if they're doing things on social media or saying things on social media that target certain people, that make it appear you know appear as if they're in their silos, I I just I just it's a cautionary tale, and um, I think ultimately we have to be. Um, connected to how, how people put their ideologies out there. Um, and, and if they're, you know, it, again, I think if, if you've got people who are contentious and angry, who are often, you know, and they want your vote, I, I just would wonder how much they're going to get accomplished when they go to, you know, when they go to the state government or when we send them to Washington how effective are these people going to be if they are constantly clashing with those around them? And so those, those would be things I'd be, I'd be looking at in terms of civility. I think that we have to we, we have to call those folks to higher standards in how they deal with each other. And I think we have to model to a certain degree what we want to see in those people we vote for.
1: And if you want to hold your representative accountable, vote. And also t- talk to them, like write them letters and that sort of thing. Um, they do pay attention to them, despite that. But we think about, so we want to say, oh, the politicians just have maybe gone off a rail or something. But they're oftentimes being incivil, or they're behaving the way they can, because they're trying to please a subset of their voters that they know are going to turn out for elections, or to prevent them from turning out for elections. Um, you know, Lindsey Graham's, um, outburst in the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, many think it's a function of or um, there's probably a lot of reasons, but one of the functions is is that he was scared coming up to his next re-election that he was going to get targeted as too moderate and have a challenger from a more conservative position. And so he needed to um, behave in a way that clearly demonstrated his position, but But that's because he needs to court primary voters that are more extreme. And so if he had to court more moderate primary voters to win that election or to then win the general election, he would be behaving differently probably. As another
4: reminder, I am almost done with a master's in communication. And there are a lot of jobs that I can apply for where I just sit behind a politician and give them communication and media advice. And so a lot of times when we think is a brash, emotional outburst is a planned one. And these are appeals to a certain demographic's emotions based on evidence and facts that that campaign has gathered because it works. And so when we stop letting it work, then change is going to happen.
0: So I want to ask you all one more question this evening Um, how can we help what are we've talked about a lot of different ideas here um, but what uh, kind of rises to the top for each of you about you know just ways that we all can okay vote I'm (laughs) guessing might be a a pretty big one other than that let's all vote Um, what else rises to the top for you all uh, that we should be doing
4: Okay. Uh, The one thing that always rises to the top for me anytime this conversation comes up is you have to be your own advocate. You can't throw your hands in the sky and say, ah, this is such a problem. Somebody else should solve it. So whether being your own advocate is calling out the fake news that you see running for political office, having difficult conversations with your family members, listening to KMUW in the morning, um, these are all things in which you can be your own advocate and change doesn't happen without a lot of people. And a very um, important teacher, when I was in middle school actually, told me that I should not despair because the efforts that I was making were one people's worth. And if I could convince two people to join me, then our efforts would be three people worths. And so the idea is that if we're all an advocate, then we'll have a movement. And so I think that rises to the top for me.
3: Um,
2: I I really can't impress it upon you enough. um, If I've said nothing that you heard today... I hope that you will take the advice to go outside of your your comfortable spaces. And even even if you need some help, um, like connecting with someone that um, you just kind of put your cards on the table. This is difficult for me, but I want to understand more. I want to understand more about the community that you live in Or about a belief system that you have Um, but I think we have to start having those conversations if you think about the world that we're living in now um, it's it's tragic sometimes when you hear um, I I, I, it, it 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 grieves my heart to think about how many mass shootings we've had over time and I know that's a whole nother level of conversation but I think Sometimes what it makes me think is I would rather fight civilly with the people that I'm with than to get so far and demonize that person. And then in a split second, we're doing things that really are irreversible to each other. And, and to me, that's not, um, that's not a society I want to be a part of. And so I, I say this, uh, if, if, I've, if I can be persuasive without pushing, being pushy, I would say take the time to try to understand those people who are on the other side of the aisle from you. Um, one of my um, colleagues said this to me today. Um, unchallenged beliefs are often not strong ones. We have, to, we have to be willing to test our belief systems if they're real. And so in some ways, by putting them out there, especially with people who have opposing ones, I think that's important. And so I, I hope that that would be um, the spaces that we choose to live in, that, that those are the ways that we build bridges with each other.
1: So, you know, I obviously think it's important to vote, but I'm guessing you guys already are voting in this room, um, just based upon the fact that you're interested civically enough to come out to an evening like this. And so um, you're not the ones that need to get out to vote. Um, And so in some ways that's preaching to the choir. Um, But I would say is, Conversations about politics and government do not have to be partisan in nature. And I think so often we focus on the negatives of government. Um, what's gone wrong? Um, you know, All the sort of corruption and that sort of thing. And so maybe the place to start some of these conversations are the ways that we benefit from government and we all benefit a ton from government from you know streets to road improvements to um education and so you know talking about that value of education But we also benefit in other ways from social security to student loans to a whole slew of things that we don't realize that we're benefiting from government on a daily basis. And so having those conversations with people, increasing the awareness of how government affects our lives can then increase people's civic engagement and um, help get those people involved that currently aren't involved. And so it doesn't have to be partisan and it doesn't have to. To be contentious um, you can start to build there thank you
0: very much let's have a huge round of applause <laughs> what a wonderful discussion you guys were informative and inspiring it was delightful um, I do have a winner for our Lucinda's gift certificate the winner is Vivian Clark yay vivian uh, i don't know where it is oh wait it's here what am i saying come here vivian um and please join us next month uh for another wonderful conversation we will be here at roxy's on november 13th please uh please join us for that thank you so much for coming and have a good evening everyone Thanks for joining us for Engage ICT Democracy on Tap. Find more podcasts and videos at engageict.org. This show was hosted at Roxy's Downtown in Wichita, Kansas. The engineer is Mark Statzer, Beth Golay is the producer, and I'm the host. For KMUW, I'm Sarah Jane Crespo.